Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Everyone wants a service dog, and the demand for these helpful pups has led to the rise of an industry with almost no regulation, and it can be pricey. Organizations can charge anywhere from $15,000 to $40,000 for a fully trained service dog, depending on the type of ailments they're supposed to help with. Trainers, for their part, do incur a lot of costs for boarding, training, and feeding, and must also account for some 60% of dogs that don't make it through the training process. Some families in desperate need of these services opt for buying their own dog and then getting them trained, which could be a gamble if they don't make it all the way. All this has created a Wild West market for service dogs. For more on all this, we'll speak to Mark Ian Harlick, Senior Colorado Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. You know, it's really interesting because it used to be that service dogs were primarily trained by these large kind of nonprofit groups that raised their own money and provided these dogs to needy families for free. But as, you know, we learned how incredible dogs are and then all the things they can do, you know, there's, there's just so many more patients that could be helped by a dog. You know, a kid has autism or epilepsy. There are dogs that could help them manage that. And so the waiting list became so long. And, you know, when there's demand, <laughs> an industry pops up to meet it. So there have been all these sort of backyard trainers that have created, you know, for-profit companies to train service dogs. And they're charging, you know, sometimes up to thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 for a fully service, uh, wow. fully trained service dog. Yeah it's, yeah, it's quite a financial burden for these families. To illustrate the high demand, so there is a company called Canine Assistance. They have the ability to train and place with a family a maximum of 100 dogs per year, but they say there is, they receive about 1,400 applications. That's just one company. So uh, multiply that around the country and uh, you, know, you, you can see how high the demand really is. Before we get into kind of all of the stuff that's going on, uh, you did profile a family who is in need of dogs, possibly two dogs. Tell me their story just to kind of paint yeah. the picture of what it, what it looks like. Yeah, I, I spoke to a mother, Jenny Manas, who, uh, you know, she first thing she told me was, you know, I'm not that much of a dog person, but, you know, she's got three kids, all of which have, have some health issues. And her oldest daughter, Soraya, uh, was diagnosed with autism. And then her, uh, her second oldest kid, Phoenix, uh, was diagnosed with epilepsy. And uh, doctors have kind of recommended that she get service dogs to help both of them. And so they started going through and looking through the process and they think they've kind of found a cheaper option. They're, they're, they're hoping that they can buy a dog, do this sort of basic obedience training themselves, and then have that dog trained as a service dog. But it's still going to cost them $10,000 per dog. And this is a family that lives below the federal poverty line. So it's, it's a huge burden. And to you know, your point about uh, you know, this family is going to buy their own dog and then have it go through the training rather than picking out a program dog. So somebody, a, a, a dog that uh, you know, the program, the, the people that are training it, they get it, they board the dog, they train the dog, and when it's all set and ready to go, they'll place it with a family. There's a lot of dogs that drop out of these programs. They're just not equipped to truly be a service dog you know some of them are can be very nice and all but you know they can't handle the training or do the job as effectively so there's a lot of dogs that don't make the cut and that could be possible for this family too and other families that are going that route 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's part of the reason why the costs are so high is they have to cover the 60% of dogs that will wash out of training as well as the ones that actually get placed. But, you know, for the Manis family, they're going to, uh, you know, breed their own, they're going to buy a, a bred dog and then train them. And when it goes to the service training, there's a very real possibility that, that dog won't be able to handle it. So they're they're gambling that the dog will make it through and they'll save money. But in the end, they could end up with you know just a really expensive family pet and still not have that service dog that they need. Let's talk about regulations for service dog trainers and then the dogs themselves. There's really no certification process for the service dogs. I know these uh, companies and trainers will train them to handle specific illnesses and, and ailments and all that, but that's they're saying this dog is ready to help there. There's no overall governing board or something that gives a certificate to that dog. That's correct. There's there's really no certification. There are companies that have popped up where you can register your animal as, as as a service animal, and we've obviously you know heard all the stories about people taking the peacocks onto the planes and things of that sort. It's an unregulated industry. But even the, on the dog training side, there's really kind of no regulation or oversight. There is a uh, a nonprofit uh, sort of industry group at the North American Board of the Assistance Dogs International, and they do accredit service dog trainers, but that accreditation is voluntary. Only nonprofits are allowed to be accredited. It takes a few years to do it, but it does give folks uh, some reassurance that this is a legitimate outfit training dogs, that they know what they're doing. But even those dogs, when you know, when they come out, you don't get any sort of certificate to say, oh, yes, this dog has passed some sort of trials so we know that they can do what, what uh, the nonprofit has promised. I've met a couple of people that do have service dogs, and they are incredible animals, very loving, but also very good at what they do, uh, you know, whatever, whatever their, their specific job is. Um, so you can tell, you know, in my experience, I can tell that they've been very well trained. But obviously, we're talking about this kind of rise of an industry, right, where a lot of people are training dogs. There's always bad actors, unfortunately, and, and this is part of the story. So you had a couple examples where there were some attorneys generals in different states that actually filed lawsuits against trainers for not providing what they you know they were supposed to and in these cases they were i think one of them charged a family twenty seven thousand dollars for a dog just uh, huge sums of money yeah it's uh it's you know part of the unregulated industry you know there's there's no oversight and there's really very little recourse for families i mean in this case you know in virginia and in north carolina these two dog training outfits that were sued by the attorney general the families were able to get you know somebody at the state level to take up their cause and file suit but for most families you know if you get a dog that isn't properly trained you're just kind of out the money and you don't really have have much recourse there. Um, it's also a problem, you know, the, a lot of these trainers rely on volunteers to do parts of the training, you know, they, to, to take the dogs out into public and, you know, they, they get college students, they'll take the dog with them to class and things of that sort. And the deal is that the trainer is supposed to pay for their food and their vet bills and things of that sort while they're doing this training. And some of those college students get, you know, left out to dry as well when these companies go under or when they're just simply unscrupulous. So it, it's very much a, you know, sort of a Wild West situation out there and sort of buyer beware. Has there been any effort made to form some type of certification process, uh, you know, anything on the governmental level to, to get involved with regulating this? Yeah, there really hasn't been anything like that. I, you know, I asked around to see whether there were any state legislatures or even on the federal level people stepping in to do this. 
There are some regulations around service animals on airplanes that are written by the Department of Transportation, but that doesn't really go to the training of the dogs. It's, it really relies on an individual to stipulate that their dog is a service dog and, and they perform certain duties to help them and things of that sort. So there's no oversight of this industry and, and, and that's really leaving families uh, at risk. Yeah. You know, we're taught a lot of this deals with the costs, obviously, you know, if you're going to go through a process like this, you got to do your due diligence with the trainers and make sure they're all on the up and up. But for them, I mean, you know, the costs for them are really high. You know, uh, I think uh, you talked about a, a group called medical mutts. So it just, it costs mm-hmm. them $11,000 yeah. just to board and train the dog. Obviously they have to make a profit after that too. If, if that's part of the industry, right. If they're not donating the dog like that, but that's why these costs are so high. Absolutely. I mean, you think about, you know, the cost of acquiring the dog, whether it's from a breeder or whether you're breeding those dogs by yourself, then uh, six months of, of caring for that dog, buying all the supplies, the food, taking him to the vet, getting him shots. And then, you know, a, a half a year into that dog's life, he starts training to be a service dog. And that's a very labor-intensive process. So it is an expensive proposition. And Unfortunately, some people will take advantage of that. One of the things that's, that's really kind of allowed this, this for-profit industry to grow is, is the ability for people to raise money online through GoFundMe or Facebook or things of that sort, you knowing that people aren't paying this you know, $40,000 sometimes price tag out of their own pocket, the trainers can sort of get away with that and, and, and still be able to make a profit. So it's, it's a very different world from you know, even 20 years ago when the demand wasn't as high. We didn't know as much about what dogs could do. And the ability to sort of crowdsource the funds for a dog wasn't existent. So it's really, it's really an industry that's crying out for some regulation right now. Mark Ian Harlock, Senior Colorado Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Oscar. Appreciate it. Finally for this week, we'll tell you about the nocturnals, the ultra introverts that prefer to go about their lives at night, relishing in the solitude and quiet. The people that seek out this lifestyle by choice go against what many psychologists think is an important part of human interaction. It also goes against their own natural circadian rhythms. But some feel that the inconveniences of operating at night or even the possible health effects are acceptable trade-offs because it helps make them happier and truer to themselves. For more on these nocturnals, we'll speak to Faith Hill, associate editor at The Atlantic. So I, I talk to people who live nocturnally specifically because they want the peace and the quiet that comes with being awake when most people are asleep. So these people told me about this kind of, you know, magical parallel universe almost that they, they live in and they do their shopping in uh, empty 24-hour stores and totally avoid lines and crowds and they really just bask in the solitude. And, you know, they've really sought out this lifestyle, particularly because they wanted more solitude. They didn't want to be around people so much. And it really intrigued me because yeah. I've always kind of assumed that social connection is this very core innate human need. And, and I know there's been a lot of concern about loneliness in the recent past as a sort of a public health issue. But yes, these people seem to kind of challenge that. You know, they really, some of them really spend most of their time alone and don't get right. much interaction at all. And, and they told me they were happy with that. Uh, you mentioned loneliness, right? So throughout the pandemic, especially early on with lockdowns and stuff, that was a huge issue. And, and you know, a lot of people did need some mental health support because of that. But 
you know, on the face of it, it seems like it could be really cool, you know, uh, you know, not have to deal with so much other people get all your stuff done and peace and quiet and everything. And for myself, I just, uh, you know, reading through this article, I, I just, I'm not that type of person. I, I don't think I could do it for long stretches of time, but to the point of the article, right? Th- these people prefer it. They want this to be their whole life model. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I think it's important to state that it's, I think it's probably pretty rare. It's not that this is very common, but it is, I think it suggests that people are really different. And I think there is a problem of social isolation. And for most people, that is not healthy to not get regular social connection. But for some people, you know, they really don't need as much social connection as we would think. Yeah, let's talk about that. You know, obviously, you mentioned it too, right? And you put it in the article. This is not everybody. There are some that are forced to live this life, you know, because they work nighttime jobs, things like that. These people are seeking this out. But tell me about what mm-hmm. psychologists do say when it comes to that need for social interaction and how it's important because it could even affect uh, even uh, beyond that need for social interaction, just going against the grain, going against the circadian rhythm, right? The the kind of body's penchant for wanting to be awake during daylight hours, that could cause a lot of problems, health problems for people too. Yes, that's right. Um, I mean, most people, you know, sort of naturally follow a similar circadian rhythm and disrupting that, uh, there's plenty of research that that can be really bad for your health. You know, there's associated with increased risk of type 2 diabetes and heart disease and cancer, and it can really not be good for your health. And some of the nocturnal people I talked to were kind of forcing themselves into a schedule that really did tire them out. And, you know, they were very intentional about sort of using blackout curtains and white noise machines and trying to get the best sleep they could. But, you know, I think at least for some of them, it's sort of a sacrifice that they were making. And then, and yeah, with sort of the impacts of, you know, social isolation on, on mental health, that's very real too. There is a lot of research that for most people, there are very real effects of loneliness on, you know, our physical health right down to the cellular level. So, you know, it is a real thing. But I think where the question kind of comes in is sort of how universal that need is for social connection. And there's a long history in psychology of talking about so-called universal human needs. You know, a lot of people will have heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And the basic assumption is that there's a, you know, set of some really fundamental needs that all humans share. And I think it's a very appealing idea, of course, that, you know, despite all of our differences, we're the same on some fundamental level. But when I talked to psychologists about these nocturnal people, some of them did think that it might be possible for some people to be highly isolated and also living a fulfilling life. Uh, One of them said he thinks there are some people who are so low in the need for social connection that it basically doesn't exist for them. Right. You, you, Um, you, there was a a specific person that you were speaking to really said that it made them happier and it helped them be mm -hmm. more who they wanted to be like a more truer to themselves as a person. A lot of the people I talked to described it in a really similar way, you know, similar to each other. They, um, you know, kind of described having tried for many, many years to sort of go against, you know, the natural current of what they felt they wanted. Like it seemed like everyone else, you know, wanted to be around people and they just never did and didn't understand why they felt that way. And they had a lot of guilt about it and tried to fight it for a really long time. And then, you know, a lot of different people kind of described this moment in their life where they realized that they could 
avoid it. Some of them, you know, started doing night shifts for other reasons and then realized it made them a lot happier. And, you know, then it was kind of this revolution for them that they realized they could live how they wanted to live in the nighttime that really gave them the solitude that they had always wanted. Now, uh, you know, obviously a lot of these people were, you know, getting rid of the hustle and bustle and not having to interact with coworkers and things like that. You know, that could be pretty desirable for a lot of people. But what about close personal relationships? I mean, were any of the people that you spoke to married or had boyfriends and girlfriends, things like that, that that I could see being a troublesome aspect of life, right? If you want to be the nighttime person and maybe the other person isn't like that or they just don't have the luxury because of work and things like that. I talked to a variation of people, you know, there was kind of the people I spoke to fell along a spectrum and some of them um, were married and, you know, they were married to people who weren't living nocturnally. And that really surprised me to hear about, but they seemed to make it work. You know, it could be hard. One person I talked to had sort of an ongoing conversation with their partner about how to to figure this out together and, um, you know, trying to explain why so much solitude was needed. But it did seem like those people that I talked to who, you know, sort of did have have some people in their life, um, including spouses, that it was just an understanding that needed to be achieved between both of them, that there was not going to be as much time spent together as normal. It was just not going to happen. And sort of there were compromises made. And then for some people I talked to, they really were loners more than those people and spent most of their time alone. And had lived really intentionally to make it that way, you know, had sort of lost touch with friends or turned down sort of potential romantic partners. And they said they didn't regret it. Yeah, it's it's so tough. You know, I, reading through this, as I mentioned, you know, you look to yourself and kind of think, could I do something? Do I want something like this? And, you know, working a few overnight shifts here and there in my lifetime, I could not. I did not enjoy that. Right. But that's that's for me. And everybody is different. So with all these people that you spoke to, what is their ultimate goal? Is it to retreat, to be isolated? Do they just like want to live their life at night? I I know one person you mentioned, he says he wants to retire to a little ranch somewhere. Uh, He wants peace, (laughs) quiet and dark. You know, that's that's his goal. A lot of the people I talk to really do just kind of want to be left alone. You know, I think it's hard for a lot of people to understand, but they really just feel happier being alone and having their peace and quiet. And a lot of them talked about associating that with the sense of freedom that, you know, they had kind of tried to live like everyone else lived. But in the nighttime, they have, you know, a sense they feel free to be who they want to be and just to, you know, be able to focus. And I think, you know, a lot of them are really just trying to hold on to that as much going forward or have more of it. And for them, it's sort of, you know, a sense of control over their life if they can achieve that. Well, I mean, it's an interesting look at uh, at this. It's, it is a tough go. As I mentioned, you have to do a lot of preparation to help your body accommodate and, you know, get along with some of that uh, loneliness. But if that's what you're looking for, then, you know, maybe that is helping you out at that point. So I suggest everybody check out Faith's piece on this. Uh, there's a lot of detail in there we couldn't get to. Faith Hill, Associate Editor at The Atlantic. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.